The United States has dumped trillions of dollars into the U.S. education system, and yet our test scores have not seen a significant increase. Childhood anxiety and depression is at an all-time high. School shootings, child suicides, these things are on the rise. And our country trails behind several others in terms of reading and math scores. But my guest today, Bradley W. Skinner, an expert in education, says that it's not what we teach our children, but how. That those relationships teachers have with their students is paramount to anything else occurring into the schools. This is the Better America Podcast. I'm your host, Billy Hatridge. Let's jump in. Thank everybody for tuning in to the Better America podcast. I am your host, Billy Hatridge, and with me today is Bradley Skinner, and he is coming all the way from, and Bradley, I apologize, I did not write down where you're coming in from, so why don't you introduce yourself and, and, and tell people about what you do? Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, always love the opportunity to talk about education and how we can make things better for our students. Uh, so again, my name is Bradley W. Skinner. I am an educator. Uh, actually, I'm a, a man of many slashes, I guess. I'm a teacher, director, actor, speaker, uh, celebrity impersonator, uh, DJ, and an author. And I'm actually coming to you. I now reside in Southwest Wyoming, and I operate uh, out of there as well as down into uh, the Salt Lake City area uh, for when I have to travel. And that is kind of a little bit about me and, and what I do. And I'm happy to be here to be able to share some of the, the things that, uh, that, that I'm a part of and, and helping other schools across the country and just being able to talk about kind of what education is looking like and actually what it may be looking like when we get to the fall again. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about your journey as an educator, where you started out and kind of how you got to being a man of many hats, as it were. Absolutely. Probably the biggest... Uh, Surprise, I think, you know, I've, I've been an educator for uh, going into my 20th year, um, but it's not always what I have done. And what I mean by that is these many hats have only come into existence in this last couple of years. Uh, prior to that, uh, just being a teacher was my sole focus. And I kind of operated under the, the mantra of keep your head down, don't make any waves, and if people don't notice you, then maybe you can just squeak by and just do your job. And finding and doing that actually created a lot of issues that I didn't know were going to exist in education. And a lot of those became self-isolation. Uh, it became uh, anxiety. I suffered with depression and eventually ended up leaving teaching. And seven years ago, and I think this is why these many hats kind of surprise people is that seven years ago, I was a homeless pizza delivery driver and it, it, it crushed my world. And I lost that self identity because I identified so much with being a teacher that when I wasn't a teacher anymore, I didn't know who I was and I didn't know what I was supposed to do. And it took, it took a while to, to get that road back. And I, 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 I ended up going back to school. I ended up, uh, working on some other things. And then the biggest thing was then I found a principal that was willing to uh, to roll the dice and take a chance on somebody like me. 
with a, a, a flawed past, with failings, uh, mistakes, uh, and, and having that vote of confidence is really what changed everything. Having a principal that saw me for what I could do and what I could offer and, and helped build me to be a better version of myself, that's what changed everything. And that really taught me the importance of surrounding ourselves with good people. And so then I just, I was able to jump in and start doing things that I had skills in, but no one ever wanted to help foster that. And so having that dedicated principal made a huge difference. Uh, his name is Darren Peppard. He actually just has a book called The Road to Awesome that came out yesterday. It's available on Amazon. So there's a little shout out to him because he's, he's incredible, incredible individual, uh, a great mentor, role model, and amazing friend. And so in doing that and finding my road back, I was able to start seeing that I had more to offer, that I was able to start to get into schools and I could share my message with students and I could talk to the importance of building school culture and climate to keep good teachers from leaving the education field uh, to help, you know, the quote unquote burnout that teachers might face, which really it's more than, I don't really think a burnout is the correct term. It's more of demoralization. And so trying to help educators prevent that in schools to build their culture and climate in a successful way to keep good educators from leaving. Uh, and so in doing that, it's really opened up a, a whole new world of, of education to me and what I've been able to do and to take that, what I thought was gone, but it really was just a small burning ember and to bring it back into a roaring fire of passion for teaching. Awesome. And you know, I think that that's something a lot of Americans, um, especially in this society, we graduate out of school and we are so just full of passion and we're excited to get into the field. And we have all these ideas about how we're going to change the system for the better. And, you know, we spend several years just really excited and passionate for our jobs. And then something happens where we kind of fall in that rut a little bit. You know, we start feeling a little burnt out. We feel like we're hitting a brick wall with every change we're wanting to make. And ultimately, we need to remind ourselves that, um, like where you're at right now, we have to stay true to the fight that we're fighting because change mm -hmm. has to happen. Change is going to happen. In education, there is no stopping change. We just have to make sure that we're directing it down the right path. And yep. there are some many ways that we're not going down the right path, I feel like, but there's a lot of really good programs out there. There's a lot of really good things that we're looking into as far as our education in our schools and kind of where that's headed. So absolutely. What are some of the big soapbox issues that you are really trying to fight or address in what you're doing as, as a speaker, as an author, as, as just about everything that you've got going on? I think uh, really one of the big ones, as I mentioned uh, a little bit there, is, is failing. I think we look so often at failing of being such a negative, life-altering, terrible event, instead of looking at it as it's a simple stepping stone towards success. So right there is one of the biggest things. I see students all over the country who would rather not attempt something out of fear of failure than actually trying it and learning from the experience. Uh, I see it even on a high school level of students who out of the fear that's been created from their previous classes or education environment or whatever it may be that's created it, they don't even want to read aloud. Reading out loud still causes anxiety for students in a class. And that's terrible. We should love reading. It should be an exciting thing, but it's still that fear of what if I say a word wrong or what if someone laughs at me or, you know, it's, why are, why is that even a thing that shouldn't even exist? It should just be the joy of, of reading and, 
yeah, we make a mistake, but you learn from it. You learn how to pronounce the word. And then we apply that to so many other things. Students who don't want to try out for a sport because there's a fear they may not make the team. So as long as they control it, it's easier to control that narrative by not doing it and not trying. I, I heard one story just yesterday uh, with, a, with an educator I was speaking with uh, in, in Ontario. And it was of a student who the teacher kept basically nagging him. Why haven't you turned in your paper? Why haven't you turned in your paper? And then the day of the deadline came in and passed the next day, cornered the kid in the school in the hall and was like, hey, I've given you all this extra time. Why haven't you turned in that paper? And the student said, because as long as I have it, it's still good. And it's just that fear of what could happen stifles opportunities and creativity. And, and that's, we're missing the boat there. We need to start looking at those, those failings as stepping stones to success. It's part of it. And just because we fail does not make us a failure. If we don't pick ourselves up and continue and learn from it, that's when we can allow ourselves to be a failure, but it doesn't have to be. Failings are great. I fail all the time. I fail with relish. I love it. I learn from it. And it's made me who I am today. And I'll, I'll tell you, um, the failing thing is something I think we definitely as a society need to focus back on because, you know, early 1900s, that was a big thing was we were just innovators. We were inventive. We knew how to create things and come up with new ideas. But these, these men and women who were doing that went through a bazillion failures before they got to that. Yes. That worked. And I'll tell you a, a short story. My daughter is three and we were out at the barn a few weeks ago and we're getting the compost. We're putting the, the pony poo in the compost and we're getting the compost out to take the garden. And I'm explaining to her about how worms work and how the compost works. And, and she was asking why we're putting poo in the garden. And I said, <laughs> well, you know, uh, horse poop helps me helps things grow. She's like, they, they help things grow. You know, and she's just real inquisitive about that. But it stuck with me, that statement I made. And I thought, you know, we got to remember that, that failures, if, if you look at your work and you think it's a pile of crap, just know that crap makes good fertilizer, right? Things grow from that. And we have to allow people to understand that it is okay to try and fail because like you said, the fear of failure, I think staunches creativity. It prevents a lot of problem solving because they just don't want to try. And when you're not trying, you're not even problem solving. And we yeah, look and at failures. Problem solving is such an important skill. They need is. that skill. And that's something that I think as a whole, as educators, it, it, the big E as it were, I think you'd probably attest that it's the culture of the school, not necessarily any specific program or curriculum that we're using, but just the attitude towards our students that, that needs to have the biggest change. Would you, would you Agreed. agree? Yep. Okay. Absolutely. And so I think with that, uh, so obviously that's one. And then really the, the other big thing that I think is on everyone's mind that is probably the biggest issue right now, it simply is what is education going to look like in the fall? Uh, for me, um, being, uh, I teach uh, both uh, theater and American literature. Those are my, my main focuses uh, right now. Uh, I just uh, have been working the last few years with student government. So I've been doing that. I've been doing some coaching and of course I do directing. So all of those things are going to look different. There's just going to be changes. I know that's on everyone's mind. And I'm sure that's probably be what the majority of our focus today is probably going to be talking about is what are, what, what is, what is school going to look like and how are those changes going to affect kids and what are the, the best changes that we can make 
to be able to help the most amount of students possible while providing equity for all and hopefully minimizing and mitigating any conflicts that might arise from this whole pandemic and education that we're dealing with right now. We're really expecting anxiety to be a big, the biggest issue in returning to school with our students. Mm -hmm. um, especially, I work with the special education population, and we already have anxiety issues. Right? I was yeah. listening to a podcast yesterday, and they talked about how I think the the average onset for anxiety-based disorders is 11 years old, and we have mm -hmm. preschoolers and kindergartners who are dealing with anxiety, which anxiety in and of itself isn't inherently bad. We all need right. a certain level of anxiety to let us know to back off or to to fight something. It's part of that fight or fight, flight response. But what, are you, what do you think is the best thing that schools can be doing to kind of help with that, the mental health aspect of education with our students? I think one of the first things they've got to do is normalize it. Uh, if, if you go into a school and we're still dealing with the old, you know, the old school, the, the good old boy mentality of um, sit down, be quiet. We don't talk about your feelings. And if you are feeling something, you bottle that stuff up and keep it quiet because we have to normalize it. If kids start worrying, they're going to start worrying that they're worrying. And then they start worrying about the fact that they're worrying and not knowing why they're worrying. And then it just becomes this, this downward spiral that we can't get out of. So letting students know that, look, it's, it's okay. You have every right to feel what you're feeling. And I'm not going to tell you how you should feel, but I'm going to help you through those feelings so we can work productively together. And if schools can do that right off of the bat, that's going to help in, in, in mitigating some of those other issues. It's okay for students to feel. As you said, anxiety is not inherently bad. Anxiety is helpful. It gives us that, that knowledge of, of what we're doing and that, you know what, this, this can be a healthy thing. But we don't have to let the small anxieties turn into a, a full-blown panic attack. Right. And knowing if, if our schools are letting kids, if the counselors are there, if teachers are on the same boat, if we're all working together and collectively and letting our students know that we're there for them and that we're putting things in place to help them express those feelings and to work through them rather than letting kids feel like they don't have a voice, we're, we're going to be starting things off hopefully on the right foot. So if you have, let's say, for example, you have an educator who has a student in their class who they're constantly restless, they're constantly kind of picking at other children, trying to escalate situations. They're constantly being told to sit back down, you know, be quiet, these kinds of things. And then they get to the point where they finally get sent outside to the hall or to the office. What are some basic strategies that educators can do in the classroom in a response to that before they escalate the situation to the point where now the child is getting a, a disciplinary action? Uh, that's that's a great question and that's one that I know I'm not an expert on because of the fact that in my 20 years of education I've never kicked a kid out of class I've never even filled out a discipline referral in my entire career and and it's because I haven't had to I think the biggest the, the, the best medicine is preventative so in first off is building relationships with students that's what I focus on first and foremost in my classes. I don't even get into my syllabus until the third or fourth day of school because I'm focused those first few days on just building relationships. I want to build those relationships of trust. I want those students to know that I care about them and that I want them to learn what I'm going to be teaching because it's going to benefit them and it's going to make them better individuals and better community members. I'm not focused on the grades. I'm not focused on, uh, on testing. 
I'm focused on them as individuals. And if they know that, then they're willing to do the things that I need them to do within my classroom. So after spending that time, I've had students that fit into that, that, that demographic of, of those restless students or those that just, they, they can't sit still or they're, they're tappers, you know, constantly clicking or tapping pencils or, or fidgeting. And so once I, in those first three days, since I'm not focused on content and curriculum yet, and I'm focused on relationships, I've already identified who some of those students are. And it hasn't affected any learning yet it hasn't impeded anybody else's practices within the classroom because we haven't got to that point yet. So no one's been uh, to, to their detriment with this student. They haven't been uh, really impacted or affected yet. We're still just having fun. And then that gives me time to talk to that student and set things up. I let them know that I'm never going to tell a kid to sit back down. Uh, if you need to get up and walk around the classroom, you have permission. You don't need to ask me. I'd rather have you get up and take a little stroll, go over and pick up a book, uh, go, you know, get a drink, do whatever it is that you need to do in that moment. You don't need my permission. I mean, these are high schoolers that I teach, so they don't need, you know, I, I think that's so funny that so often we tell students that high school is going to prepare you for the real world. Well, well where else other than maybe a, a concert or an airplane are kids going to have in the real world assigned seating? Right. So why do we still use assigned seating? Uh, why do we, you know, why do we do these things? You don't need my permission to, to get a drink. You don't need my permission to go to the bathroom. You know, those are, those are silly to me. So I let my students know that you can get up and wander. You can move. You know, as long as you're not impeding the learning of others, take care of yourself. And, and so I give them that full permission. And a lot of times knowing that they have permission to do what they need to do in itself curbs a lot of those fidgeting behaviors um, and some of that anxiety that they have that they don't act out, that they're not so stressed and they're not feeling that anxiety simply from knowing that, well, if I start to feel this way, I have permission. I can get up and leave whenever I want. And then they actually don't need to get up and leave because they know that they're in charge of themselves. And, and in and of itself, that has helped out tremendously for my classroom. It may not work for everybody, especially with different ages. What I do in a high school wouldn't work in an elementary school. Right. <laughs> you can't just give, give little kids carte blanche to <laughs> go roam wherever they want to. Um, but on a high school level, it has worked for me. It's been fantastic. And as I mentioned, I've never had to kick a kid out of class ever. And, and it's worked great. And I think a lot of it, it comes down to that. It's what are you doing? What are you setting up to build the relationships first? And then everything else will fall into place. Awesome. And I wanted to touch on something you mentioned, because I think that if you, you stop the average American in the street and you ask them what's wrong with our public school system today, they're not going to talk about state testing. They're not going to talk about reading scores, math scores, SATs. They're usually going to talk about either our issue with school shootings or the lack of real world preparedness that our high school graduates have. They're just not ready for the mm -hmm. real world when they graduate. And I hear that the most is that yep, they, they graduate out of high school. They have all these years of education and they, they don't know how to go to the bank and open up a checking account, or they don't know how to really participate in the real world and the real society. So what are some things that you think, especially high school educators need to start focusing on to kind of help create well-balanced functional adults, which is the, the goal of the education system? I really just think in, uh, it, it, it's skill-based in, in my opinion. I think if we take any, any curriculum, any course within a high school and those educators, 
they, they have content. And, and of course that content has to be delivered in their state standards and all these things, but it's really easy for an educator to just say, what are the most important skills that I want my students to leave my classroom with? What are the most important skills that are going to benefit them once they leave this building and they are full community members, they are independent, they are on their own, they are contributing members of society. And if they take those skills and that's what they focus on within the content of their courses, that's, that's all they need to do. It just, it needs to be that skill base. So if I look at it, let's say, let's take theater, for example, as a theater director, the, uh, the average is that less than one half of 1% of high school theater performers are going to go on to professional theater and work as a job in the career field. Okay. That's, it's not a, it's not a, we're not teaching theater to get kids out there into entertainment world. We're not teaching theater because we're going to have all these movie stars and TV stars and, and actors, you know, it's, it's not what it's for. It's, if it happens, that's great. That's awesome. It's wonderful. But we look at the skills that we're teaching in high school theater. You're teaching teamwork. You're, you're teaching problem solving. You're, you're teaching confidence. You're teaching communication and speaking skills and delivery and methods and time management. We're teaching all these skills that are going to apply to whatever career that these students choose. And they're going to be better for it, not because they took theater, but because of the skills they learned within theater. And so if we really focus on skills first, that's going to help give students those, that ability when they leave high school to be effective, where they're not going to be complaining about, well, I don't know how to do this, or I don't know how to do that. Well, most of the time they do, if they look at what those skills are, instead of just looking at the content from within a book or a delivery method in a lesson. You know? So I think that's really the biggest thing is skill-based first is should be the focus. And, you know, growing up in the South, for me, it's always about high school football. I mean, that, that's the, that's the oh, yeah. communities that I grew up in, right? It's, it's every other sport falls to the wayside, but it's, it's football. But the, the reality is when you look at how many of those students are going to go on and play in college, and then how many of those students might even play professionally or semi-professionally, it, it's, it's not a, a realistic goal to say, okay, we're making football players because we're not making football players. You know, we're trying to make functioning adults. But I think ultimately, like you said, it's about those, the, the teamwork, the problem solving, mm-hmm. the, the work ethic, the, yep. uh, all of these things of being able to react in time. And we don't have a whole lot of theater programs um, in a little bitty rural school towns, but we do have a couple drama clubs. We do have a few, uh, you know, choirs, those kinds of things. And it kind of comes back to the same thing. Those students are probably not going to go out and be, professional artists of any kind, but we have to be able to foster that creativity that they can later apply to whatever job they might get in. Absolutely. So, and one of the things talking about the skill thing, um, and I'm real bad about making things kind of about myself or my own sphere. So, so I apologize. (laughs) But when I work with in special ed classrooms, our high schools, they kind of steer away from academics and they start trying to get these kids with different levels of special needs or exceptionalities ready for just living. And so they have laundry, they do cooking activities, they do shopping. One of our districts, every Wednesday, they take their, their special ed classroom to the grocery store and they buy food for the school's food pantry. And so the special ed classroom manages the food pantry and they keep an inventory so and good. they pack all the stuff. And it's, it's awesome, but it's also said that they're getting this education and their quote unquote neurotypical peers aren't. 
and they're missing out on such crucial life skills. And that's just a soapbox for me. It's like, we need all of the school to be coming to the grocery store and learning how to grocery shop and learning how to, you know, count calories and see and make sure that you're hitting all the food groups and these things, because we do, we have a lot of people who go out and the sadder thing is they leave high school and then they go straight into college, which is more just school. And sometimes they go into dorms or they go into a situation where they're still not 100% responsible for themselves. And then they graduate and they're kind of on their own and they're in their mid twenties and they have a degree and they have a job, but they don't know how to file taxes. They don't know how to, you know, rent an apartment. And so I think you're right. I think ultimately understanding how to incorporate those skills into your, your curriculum. If you're doing, regardless of what you're working on, there's ways you can incorporate that in. And so it's definitely good. Um, so Absolutely. What, when you do your speaking engagements and we'll get to your book here in a minute that you're working on, what, what are some of the, the big topics that you like to speak about? Um, especially when you're talking to educators. Uh, so most of the time uh, when I'm speaking, uh, it's, e it's either to teachers or to students. So when I'm doing students, I'm, I'm speaking, I'm doing uh, assemblies or, or rallies, uh, depending on kind of the area of what they call them. Uh, and, and the big thing with that is, is, that, is that message of, of, of failing. When I'm speaking to educators, it's a little bit more specific into uh, really building the culture and climate of the school as well as within their classrooms. And it's just, how can we make those connections? What are those little changes that we can do? Simple things oftentimes of, of just letting our students know and building a, a caring, cre you know, creative, uh, fostering school that's going to allow for, for students to be successful. I think one of the big issues, uh, another, well, another one of the, the issues with education is we do have some of those fringe groups. You've got those uh, sometimes referred to as ghosts students that if they weren't there in school that day, would anybody really notice? And those are sometimes the most important students that we need to focus on and we need to notice and not have those ghosts in our schools. We need to have every kid coming to school feeling like they have a place to belong. And I really believe that every student needs to have at least one teacher that is a champion that will go to the mat for that kid for anything. If, if a kid can come to school and they know that they have that teacher, that even if it's just one, they've got one teacher that is going to be there for them, that is going to stand up for them, that is going to be their rock that makes coming to school a whole lot easier. I know that, that uh, for me, I, I wasn't a great student in high school. I mean, I did okay, but it made a huge difference knowing that I could go, for me, it was my AP history teacher, Stephen Player. Uh, Dr. Player was the man. And I knew that when I went to school, I was going to learn. I was going to be challenged. I was going to be pushed. I was going to be educated. And I was going to be better because he was that guy. He was that teacher that I just, I loved because I respected him. I respect him because he challenged me to be better. And he, he knew my name. He knew my struggles. He knew everything that I felt like, like, this is, this is that guy. And I'm like, every kid needs that kind of teacher. They need at least one in the building. That's just going to be there for them. You know, looking back at my education, Ms. Jackson, my psychology teacher was, was that for me. And I had her, I think three consecutive years for different levels of psychology classes and I tell you, I don't think I could remember any specific thing she taught as far as the psychology goes, but I do remember those moments, right? I remember the moments where she went above and beyond, where I was able to talk to her during lunch, where I was able to go to her with certain struggles or questions. And, and I think educators have to remember that 
the relationship needs to come first. I think mm-hmm. and you would probably agree with that more so than what you're yep. teaching because when that relationship is built, and that's something I tell all of our new therapists that come onto the team. It's like, look, you're going to spend the first two or three weeks just building a relationship. I don't care if the kid doesn't do a thing for you. I just want you to make them feel safe, make them feel like they can trust you and establish those relationships because then everything else comes a little easier when they don't see you as opposition. Yeah, um, absolutely. So, uh, but yeah, I think the solution uh, for better schools is definitely culture change. Just the paradigm shift in the way that we're looking at our students and, uh, I'll, actually, I'll let you say that if you wanted to, to kind of tie up the solution before we go into the COVID-19 response and kind of what your schools are looking at doing. Yeah. And that's, I mean, obviously right now, the big issue that we're facing is, is how do we maintain those relationships when we're not in a face-to-face environment for the majority of those schools that either went to a remote or a distant learning or a virtual scenario at the end of this last school year, it was those relationships really proved did were they effective a lot of students from all around the country as visiting with schools that either had students who completely just dropped out like once it went to remote learning they're like nope i'm done and and they were gone they just they basically just ghosted their classes and like nope then you had the other surprise was to see the number of students who were those struggling students, the ones that were kind of the um, near failing D lower C students that took advantage of that opportunity in that time to really buckle down and work and ended up moving that needle. And they ended up, you know, high C B range uh, of grades. They really took that time to say, I can improve and I can do better. And so it was really unique to see some of your successful students falling away and some of your struggling students improving dramatically. And so that showed us that there's a lot that we really need to look at in the success rate of remote learning. Is it even really possible? Is it, a, uh, is it really uh, an option or is it simply just a catch-all at the moment to try to mitigate these issues that we're facing? But the ones that those teachers that had those relationships in place we're now asking students to do things that were out of their comfort zone, out of their expectations, learning new delivery methods, learning new software. But if those relationships were in place, it was definitely a lot easier for the students to be willing to do that because they were working with their teachers. They knew their teachers were doing this because they cared about them and they wanted them to still continue their learning. And they're trying to make the best of a bad situation. But where we, those relationships weren't in place, we saw a lot more of just kids basically saying bye-bye i'm out yeah and i'll, I'll we'll, we'll continue on with the covid 19 pandemic here in a second but i want to get back to kind of the thing mentioned about adversity right and this mm-hmm. idea that you've got a lot of really hard-working students who are struggling with the way school is set up and when you look at your fortune 500 companies you look at the big ceos you look at your big money makers you'll find that a lot of them weren't good students they were average students they were struggling students but what made them successful was the ability to overcome adversity And then to kind of touch on your point, the question that I always have when I'm looking at my students is, are they successful because it's easy, because they're on an easy path, because they have a family that's supportive and that they have all these things that are allowing them to learn the way they want to learn? Because we also have these students that we know are brilliant and they just can't figure out school. Mm -hmm. They, They just can't figure out how to make it work for them. And so what are your thoughts on on adversity, on making sure that our students who don't quite mesh with the way the school is set up or the way the 
education or the curriculum is set up can can thrive and making sure that our students who are straight-a students or valedictorians aren't aren't just kind of coasting through an easier path because they understand and they're good test takers etc right i think and again this is gonna this is gonna vary from uh, from school especially with ages of students uh, but really for me where i found the greatest success and a lot of it why it doesn't happen is a lot of work it's it's more work for teachers but it's better for our students. So are we really willing to put in that more work, that extra time to help our kids? And it comes down to options. That's how, that's what I really feel it comes to is, am I just, am I giving a, uh, a one size fits all delivery method or are we really trying to help students, those who, who have learned it, what are we doing to help them to expand that knowledge? What are we doing to let them continue in their learning while we're dealing with and working with our other students who may not be there yet? And, and, and we talk about it all the time, workshops, it's always there, it's always in discussions, it's always in professional development, but it really comes down to what are we doing with those kids that are learning? What about those kids that have already learned it? And then what are we doing with those students that just aren't getting it? And rather than delivering one method, we now have to do three and that's just more work for teachers. But if we're looking and providing those options that we're saying, great, you've learned it. Now this is what I want you to do. Here's some other challenging opportunities for you. Go in and and, and do that. Then those students that aren't quite getting it, are we providing them with some of those intervention strategies to allow them to have more practice? And, and, And I know it seems, it might seem a little odd, but really I changed my entire grading practices and my delivery method after watching a kid play super Mario brothers. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and it'd be like, how, how do you connect super Mario brothers to your grading? I was like, well, well look at it. If you set down a kid, if you remember back to even when, when we were kids and we played the original old school super Mario brothers, right? We got wrecked, man. You, you would, you would lose in the first like five seconds, but As soon as you run into that first Goomba or one of the turtles, you're like, okay, well, I know not to do that. So they try it again and then they jump over them or they jump on them or they, they find the the coin bricks or they, they find shortcuts and paths through the pipes and you're, it's teaching so much learning. And if eventually the end goal is, it's not about how many points did you collect? It's not about how many, uh, bad guys did you defeat it's did you get to the end of the level successfully did you do all of the skills necessary to get to the end and so everyone plays the game a little different everyone has their own strategies everyone has their own route that they like to take or methods that they like to use to get through a certain level so if i'm grading the end product is the result did they get through the end to the end i don't need to go through and grade well you didn't collect enough coins, so you don't get as many points as your friend. Or uh, you took a different path that took longer. They, they finished this one uh, in 47 seconds, but it took you five minutes to finish uh, that. You know, we're, we're, we're not looking at, did everyone do everything right? It's, did you get the skill by the end, regardless of how many times it took, regardless of how long it took, regardless of how many points you collected? It's, did you get to the end of the level successfully? And so that changed the way that I deliver instruction to my students that they, they all may take a different path. They might take a different route. They might take longer than others, 
but are they in that framework? Are they still learning the skills necessary to get to the end of that level or that unit of study? And, and, and providing them those extra opportunities, providing some interventions, maybe some extra coaching on how they can navigate through that level. That's changed everything in how I, I operate as a teacher. And, and I found it's more successful for me. I found it's, it's working for my students than in just providing each of them those other opportunities. You know, oh, you completed it. Well, you get a little bonus level. Go work on this for a little bit. And then I can work with those other students that are still struggling, checking on my students that are getting it but may not be the higher levels. And, and it's just providing those options and, and letting students work and, and, and fail and to, to get better and to do it again and, until they succeed. And I think that we touched on something there that to bring it back around to the very beginning is this fear of failure. Because I remember growing up, I had a Sega Genesis. That was my, (laughs) um, but I had two games. And so it didn't matter how good or bad I was at it. That was the game I had to play and I had to just tough it out and and figure it out. (laughs) But what I see today with my kiddos is I have an iPad that I use for reinforcement. Uh, You know, last five minutes of the session, you know, we'll get to play. They'll open up an app and the first time they die or they fail or whatever, they close out of the app and they find something else. And they're like, oh, yeah, no, I'm not good at this, so I'm going to move on to the next thing. And I saw that, too, with, with the just watching, you know, friends, kids, or whatever, is they'll, they'll load up a game or they'll try something. The second there's any any pushback, the second they fail, the second it gets difficult, you know, they're backing out and they're finding something easier. Or watching mm-hmm. kids who just like to play a game where it's just the easiest thing in the world. I'm like, there's no challenge here. What are you even playing? I don't understand, you know, you're just mm-hmm. – it's not challenging. It's not difficult. Well, I don't like it to be challenging. You know, I don't like having it hard. I like to win. I like to win. And mm-hmm. I think that, that speaks volumes for just the attitude in general for a lot of our children today is this idea of like, I'm not going to push through the failures because I have a bazillion other options I can do. And I can just try things until I find something that I'm really, really good at and not push through those things and those challenges to Uh, succeed on things that we need to be able to succeed at because we're not always going to be able to just do the things that we're good at and Mm -hmm. top athletes, top entertainers, most of them will say, I wasn't really good at it when I started. You know, it wasn't like it was just this, um, this magic moment. Like I trained and I trained and I trained and I trained all day and nothing becomes easy. And so Mm -hmm. this ability to push through adversity, I think is an issue that we need to look at with our students is it's not always that easy. It's not always going to be easy, but how are we going to continue to address these things, especially with the relationships when we're trying to be distant, right? To get back on the COVID-19 topic. Um, What are your schools looking at doing come fall? Do y'all have a plan yet? So our, our state is uh, still in the process of, of finalizing uh, their plans. Uh, In the meantime, I've been visiting with other states and seeing what they're doing as well as pitching some ideas that that I think could be effective. Now, it doesn't mean that it's the most effective. The, the biggest issues that we're, we're obviously dealing with is everyone knows that getting kids back in school is the top priority. They learn better, it's more effective, doesn't mean it's necessarily the right thing for right now. So it's trying to find what is most effective, what is gonna help. And a lot of times I think what the, the public doesn't understand is simply just the sheer amount of logistics that's go in, go, going into to planning this and trying to figure it out. It's a struggle. It's a total struggle of trying to find a solution that works for the majority of students with the least amount of damage being done to any group that may be possibly left out. We're also trying to provide equity for all, uh, which is not easy, um, especially when we went to, to remote learning. There were some the, the biggest issues, that's why some schools and some school districts had to 
really they just completely shut down. It was like, okay, your grades are set. This is what you're going to do. And we're done because they couldn't guarantee that equity for everyone. We talked to one school district. Um, uh, I want to say, I think it was in Indiana and they actually put, um, they use their buses uh, and they put uh, basically modified Wi-Fi routers um, antennas on their buses and then drove all their buses to strategically surround the city to provide Wi-Fi for students who were at home. And then they would drive them all back at the end of the day. And then the next day they'd drive the buses back out again. And it was allowing that equity to make sure that kids had access to the internet so they could do their work. It was very creative. Unfortunately, it was a problem though that, that no one wanted to deal with, but they found a solution. And so that's what we're dealing with right now is there's just so many, every day there's a new problem. There's a new issue that we had never thought before because we've never had to deal with it. And just that, that the, the logistics is just a total nightmare for any school district and trying to figure out how to do this and how to make it work. So knowing that there's no perfect solution um, and that policies are being made right now uh, in, in handling schools during COVID-19 pandemic, it's, it's intended to mitigate, not eliminate the risk and, and letting people know that we're trying to do our best to, to try to mitigate this issue, knowing that it's not perfect, but we're doing what we truly believe is best is what all school districts need to be clearly communicating and pushing out to the public is that we understand this may not be perfect, but we're dealing with the best of a bad situation right now. So keeping that in mind, um, one of the things that I really have been suggesting uh, in, in, in consulting with schools, especially on the elementary level, so we'll start there. I recommend that if you're going back to school uh, and you're looking at face-to-face -face instruction, to really strongly consider looping your grade levels in classes and teachers. So if you were a, a second grade teacher, then you stay with those students and you are now a third grade teacher. Gotcha. The reason for that and, and, and the studies that we've been, been working on is first and foremost is you don't have to build new relationships. Those relationships are already in place. You already know your students. If you can teach second grade, you can teach third grade. Okay. That's, the, that's, that's the belief system and that's the way that they're saying you're a good teacher. You can teach what you need to for that next grade level. And you don't spend, you have to, you're, not, you're not wasting time trying to to learn who these students are. You're not having to, to meet new parents. You already have relationships in place. You've already built that framework and that groundwork to move forward. You've got the trust. They know that they care about their teachers. They've got a good relationship. They move forward and they're learning. Uh, another area uh, that I think that we don't talk about too much when it comes to looping, first of all, there's some schools that are like, that's just, that's a crazy idea. Well, everything we're doing right now is a crazy idea because right. we're trying to make it better. Um, but the two groups where looping has been proven to be most effective uh, are minority students, African-American students and our uh, Latinx students. Looping is a tremendous asset uh, when put in place because of that fact, especially when you've got any students that might be, um, if uh, English, English is a second language, they, the, the connection with those teachers already is there and that makes a huge difference in their learning. So looping your classroom, keeping your teachers moving is a huge benefit. Uh, and then uh, the, the biggest area of where looping has been most uh, effective is if we have male teachers uh, in an elementary school. Yeah. Male teachers, especially to then to young boys, uh, being able to keep that connection is 
has been huge in the, in the amount of when it comes to state testing, which on another level we need to get rid of. Um, I'll just throw that out there. Uh, <laughs> but, but looping is definitely my, my first thing I'm saying schools, school districts, you need to look at that option. Uh, the downside of it, probably the biggest complaint is when you're going to have parents that say, well, what if I have, what if my kid's in a, in a class with a bad teacher? Now they're stuck with that teacher again. Well, first thing is you, we always have options that we can look at moving and making some changes. However, the studies have also shown that it, when you loop a classroom like that, the teacher gets better. The teachers, their delivery is better because they still know the kids. Those connections are made. The relationships are in place. All the things that we're not now wasting time on at the beginning of a year, not that it's a waste, but it's now better use of time, that the teachers improve. The test scores of those students improve. All the things that we're trying to do are better because they have that connection with the teacher for another year. So I, I highly recommend that school districts for an elementary level that you look at looping uh, your grades. I, I, think it's, I think it's a tremendous uh, asset that can really be used and implemented and can be incredibly effective. Awesome. And I'll, we're coming up on about an hour now or about 50 minutes. So we'll, we'll be tying it up soon, but I wanted to touch back on what you talked about with male educators, <laughs> because as a male OT, there could be a work week where I see two men, a custodian and a coach, and that's it you know, throughout all of my schools, because there's not a lot of male educators and there's not a lot of men working in pediatrics just in general, um, especially the younger that you get. Yep. High schools have a lot more male teachers, not as many think that we need, but what do you think is the, um, and I think I already know the answer to this, but what do you think is the advantage of having more men teaching, uh, especially our little ones, our early elementary school? I, I, I think the positive role model aspect is, is tremendous. I think having the opportunity for, uh, for, for these, these young individuals to be able to see, uh, a, to see more men in their, in their classrooms. I'd also like them to be able to see more women in their administrative roles as well. So I'm going to throw that out there too. Um, so I think we need to, to increase, uh, especially on a district level, not just necessarily a building level, but district level leadership, I think seeing uh, more women in some of those positions and seeing more men in the classroom at elementary level is beneficial for our youth. Uh, they're getting to see uh, what, uh, what a, a positive role model is. They're learning uh, from men. They're, they're having, uh, and, and especially for those where we have, uh, and, 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 and I think that's one of the, the great things. We just had Father's Day the other day and um, I was able to, to, to speak to some individuals where I told them how much I really value those mothers that are having to do both jobs. Uh, and, and in those situations where there is a single mother at home, having a male teacher can be a huge, huge impact on, on, on our, our, our little kids that they get to see that they have a, a man in the classroom that's helping teach them, that's caring for them. Uh, it's definitely advantageous. And I'd love to see more men in going into elementary education. I really would. That's something that I see too, because that comment I made about how many male teachers I see in a week, there are a lot of students who see the same amount of men, you know, they go home to a single mom or if they do, it's not a very positive relationship that they have with the male figure in their home, whether it's their biological dad or boyfriend or whatever it might be. And so we definitely need more, uh, more diversity in our schools. I think is ultimately the big thing is, you know, we need more, we need more male teachers. We need more people of color teaching, um, especially in white districts. Um, yes. 
because we need to be able to have those relationships. I had a teacher years ago when I first started who told me basically that I wouldn't be able to work with this kid because she doesn't like men because she just doesn't, you know, and that my facial hair is going to have to go. I remember her telling me that like, you're gonna have to shave that beard off because like, she doesn't like facial hair. It scares her. But I had to come talk to the teacher and say, she's going to go into the work world, the, the world and have to have good relationship with men. I mean, we're 50% of the population. Like we, we're going to have to stop avoiding these, these negative relationships say, Oh, they just don't like women or they don't like men or they don't like, you know, a black teacher or whatever it might be and say, Hey, this is not, we're preparing them for the world. So they have to be okay with having these relationships and in building these relationships, especially with educators who provide such a positive role model in the child's life and making sure that they are able to establish those relationships so that when they go out into the world, they know what a positive male figure looks like. They know what a positive, you know, uh, person of color looks like, or, um, you know, whatever minority it might be in that, in that district or in that community. So yeah, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm always a big advocate for more diversity, especially with our kids, yes. because our kids turn into adults. And this is not the topic of this conversation, but racism, we can combat racism in the elementary school. But to do that, we have to have diversity in our elementary schools. Absolutely. So, 100% agree. Well, that's my soapbox there. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, we are coming up on 54 minutes. Bradley, you want to tell people about where they can find you online and kind of plug your book a little bit that you've got coming out this fall? Absolutely. Uh, so first off, uh, you can find me at Bradley W. Skinner, and Bradley is with two E's. Um, so my dad's name is Lee. Uh, my mom's middle name was Lee, so they spell Bradley a little different. So it's B-R-A-D-L-E-E. Um, but Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, TikTok, I'm on all those. Uh, figure there's platforms out there. I can still use it to send a positive message. So at Bradley W. Skinner on Facebook, you can find me uh, at Bradley W. Skinner, author slash educational speaker, or just search for a stark realization and you'll find me there. Uh, my webpage is bradleywskinner.com. And uh, you can also, if you want to book me to, to speak at your school or even to do any virtual uh, events, uh, you can always find me on speaker hub at Bradley W. Skinner. So pretty much you just search Bradley W. Skinner. You're going to find a way to get a hold of me. Um, and a couple things I've got coming up next week. Uh, I'm going to be speaking at the Jostens Renaissance Virtual Conference. Uh, you can still register. There's spots available for that at uh, jostens.com slash JRVC. Uh, the week after that, uh, I'll be speaking at the Codebreaker Power Summit. Uh, and I'll be talking there. And there's tickets available for that still at codebreakeredu.com. And both of those events are free to all educators and anybody that wants to just learn more about kind of what's happening on the horizon with education. Uh, so you can check those out. And then uh, my book that I'm hopefully should be uh, hitting Amazon later this fall is called Yelling at Flowers. And the concept of that is that in education today, we still have old practices. There's still things that we, we do that we know are less effective, but we still do them because that's how we do things, right? And, and so it's getting away from those old practices and doing those new things and willing to, to, to fail and to find success through failure. And so when we look at some of the things that we do in education that we know doesn't work, it's no more effective than yelling at flowers and expecting it to bloom. So that's awesome. kind of the concept of the book. So, yeah, I love it. I love it. Um, and one, a few more questions here for you at the end of it. What can the average listener who's listening to this podcast do today or this week to help education as a whole? What, what, what kind of ideas or mindsets do people need to have to help create this better schools that you, that you have a dream for? 
You know, I'd say right now, the best thing, if we really, if we know that going back to school, getting face-to-face instruction with our kids is the best thing that we can do. So we want that to happen. The best thing that our, the public that everyone can do right now, start wearing a mask. Amen. That, that's really it. That's the simplest thing you can do because if we get more people wearing masks, they're going to be able to allow our schools to have face-to-face instruction in the fall. If we're not, it's not going to happen. And, and, and what you're going to still have people to say, well, they don't work. Okay, well, let's test it then. Let's try it. Wear a mask when you're out in public for the next two months so we can go back to school with our kids. If, and, and, and if it doesn't, what's the, what's the most inconvenience that you've had? You, you might look silly or you have a little un- uncomfortable, you know, bands around your ears or something. Like really, that's the worst that's going to happen of this. But if we really want to get our kids back in the buildings and be face-to-face with our teachers and to learn in the most effective way possible, just put on a mask. It's not that difficult. It's not that much to ask. I'll, uh, I'll leave it there. I'll, I'll rant with you right there for, for another hour <laughs> if I was allowed to. But yeah, the mask wearing. Um, and I tell people this, right? When I go camping, I, I live in bear country. I carry bear spray. I pull my food up in a tree. You know, I don't bring the food in the tent with me on the off chance that I might find a bear. I'm not going to find a bear always. There's not, and doing those things isn't going to necessarily keep me from getting attacked by a bear. But even if it's 5% uh, less likely for me to have that bear encounter, I'm going to do it because I don't want to get attacked by a bear. Uh, and so even if these cloth yeah. masks are only 5% effective, it's still 5% less chance. And we, exactly. have to, we have to stack those things, right? It's not just one. If, it, if social distancing is 10% effective and mask is 5% effective, then you're looking at 15% effectiveness. So keep that in mind, um, everybody. Absolutely. So we will close out. Uh, I've got one last question for you, Bradley. Okay. What does a better America look like for you? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, for me, a better America is one that respects teachers more and gives them the capability to implement the most effective practices possible. A better America is one that doesn't spend frivolous efforts in concerning itself with tearing down statues because we'll be more cognizant of not memorializing oppressors and will not claim that it's erasing history because we're going to have better educators who are actually teaching true history to our great country. I think a better America is one where we share a common belief in an ideal and realize that possessing different temperaments, talents, and convictions is superior to having a nation made up of the same temperaments, talents, and convictions, and that genuine friendship can be maintained without surrendering the principle of individuality or sacrificing one's personal judgment. This has been the Better America Podcast. To help this week's guest with their vision for a better America, be sure to check out the show notes or visit theotdad.com slash betteramerica to find out more about supporting their vision and policies. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review this show wherever your podcast app may allow you. And always be sure to share the show with others. Thank you for listening and Godspeed. <laughs>